Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we're going to dive into the American way of war. We hear this term a lot, but what does it mean? We talk about it when we look at the Second World War, and that very different approach to war fighting and getting ready for the war that was adopted by American politicians and American generals, and it's also tied up with this very American reliance on science, technology, liberalism, and law when trying to ensure that wars are waged effectively, undertaken for the right reasons, and won comprehensively through the deployment of the most high-tech weapons the world has ever seen. So, join me as I discuss all of this with my good friend, Professor Michael J. Williams, from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University in the US. Mike is co-author of Law, Science, Liberalism, and the American Way of War, And so he's the perfect person to talk about this with, and it's through his expertise that we can begin to understand the American perspective on some of the most important conflicts in recent history. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. In my office at Syracuse University, a relatively rainy day, so it's good to be inside chatting with you. And where's Syracuse? Is it in upstate New York? Syracuse is technically called Central New York, which is upstate New York from New York City. It's about four hours in a car or 20 minutes in a plane. Right. So you're in, would this count as rural America? This would definitely count as semi-rural America. I mean, Syracuse is a small city. It's part of what we unfortunately now refer to as the Rust Belt, which was an area that led an American industrial production related in some ways to war making and had fallen hard times in the middle late 20th century as deindustrialization occurred, not unlike, for example, in the north of England. And Syracuse is buoyed by the fact that it has a world-class university and the Maxwell School, where I work, is number one for public administration in the United States, as well as four major hospitals. And speaking of war, Lockheed Martin has a very large facility here where they manufacture radar and sonar systems, among other things. So it's a lovely little city, but surrounded by a lot of rural America. So it's a different vibe in New York City. Well, thinking about where the U.S. draws its personnel from, its troops, and where it draws its ammunitions and its tanks and its planes from, and if Lockheed Martin's just up the road, then it sounds like you're in the perfect place to discuss your work, which is on the American way of war. We hear this so much, the American way of war. What is it? Great question. So the way that I approach and my co-author, Stephanie Carbons, 
phenomenal scholar based at Carleton University in Canada. When we talked about it, conceptualized it, we viewed essentially the American way of war as an extension of the Western way of war. And what's important here is that we're looking at a cultural war. The reason we do so, as Adrian Goldsworthy has written, is that if you're going to learn from the past, you have to understand it on its own terms. And that each society and culture tends to have a unique view of warfare that affects how they fight. And of course, then how you can beat them. We definitely don't look at this in a deterministic fashion. A big fan of Patrick Porter's work on military orientalism. So for us, this is really war as a cultural toolbox. So we draw on the work of Anne Swindler, who is a sociologist focused on domestic situations. But we look at her repertoire of tools that are available in a society and how you assemble action, in this case, wage war. And so this dates all the way back. Really, it's not an uninterrupted line. So that's the first thing that the Western way of war definitely goes back to the Greeks, but is interrupted, not at least in the Middle Ages, things change. But what you have to understand is that for the Greeks, war was an affair of the state, right, which is different than, say, for a tribe or a clan, right, or honor or revenge, which occurs both in Europe and other parts of the world. And we also, I should want a footnote or caveat here, I certainly don't view the Western way of war as necessarily better than any other way of warfare. It has been highly effective in eradicating other forms of warfare. It is highly destructive. But again, the way that Japan fought wars, the way that wars were fought in Mesoamerica, across the African continent, in the Middle East, just reflect the imperatives of a society in terms of the agricultural production, food, right, industrialism, all kinds of things. We live in the world of multiple modernities, and they're just different. So we should understand them as different, not necessarily better or worse. That's not our approach. But for the American way of warfare, the root is in the Western way of war. And for the Greeks, war was an affair of state. And it was, as Christopher Coker from the London School of Economics reminds us, it was not a matter of blood or vendetta, but it was a collective interest. And the Greeks applied instrumental logic, right, and the technology to solve a problem. And it could be overcome through tactics and technology. And so this is something that it's picked up and transmitted through society, particularly in the Enlightenment period. By the way, the Persians who fought the Greeks thought that the Greeks were insane for the way they fought war. And if you recall from the histories where Margonis talking to Xerxes, the Persian warrior king, he says essentially that the Greeks fight wars in the most stupid fashion because of their silliness and folly. And they go to this pitched battlefield and they slug it out basically until one side is defeated and the victors come away with great losses. But he says that the losers are annihilated. And like, isn't this ridiculous? So Persians did not have a very high estimation of the Greek way, but this gets transmitted to the modern world and picked up again as the states are constituted in Europe after the medieval period. And then of course the enlightenment happens and the enlightenment gives science and reason and mathematics and things to Europe and to the Western world. And so the idea is that the modern world is evolving, that we can control things, right? And so the Newtonian revolution is critical to this. And as Argat has written, not to mention Antoine Bousquet, Birkbeck, who is a phenomenal scholar, highly recommend all his books, I'm a big fan. In his first one, The Scientific Way of War, he says that the impact of Newtonian science is essentially a belief and a knowledge of fundamental laws, and that through these fundamental laws, we can predict the future and understand the past of physical systems. And then this gets translated by the zeitgeist to how we wage war, right? And so this is the scientific underpinnings that evolve within Europe in the following centuries to believe that war is something 
that could be understood scientifically and then could become controlled. So as Comte has written, from science comes provision and from provision comes control. And this belief that war can be controlled, which is particularly evident in the writings of Yomini and in the tactics of several key European historical figures, uh, Gustav Adolphus, right, of Sweden, William of Orange, the sort of the clockwork military. Interestingly, Clausewitz and on war is, of course, a diversion. War is an art. But what we see in the U.S. is that although Clausewitz has always talked about the American military, which we'll come back to again, is actually a Yomini military. And that Yomini was most widely translated in the United States, not in Europe. And so although American military leaders always talk and write about Clausewitz, they don't practice Clausewitzian war. They practice Yomini war. So you talk about enlightenment, the importance of science, how this translates into technology and perhaps also law as well. You especially mentioned that in the book. But is the United States also not a nation that is built upon the sacred? Is there not an important factor of religion that remains within the American way of war, especially when it comes to the just wars that we hear about? And of course, that manufactures in today when we have wars across the world which are dealt in proportionate and discriminate ways with drones and precision strikes and air power. Is that not an important part of the American way of war? No. Should I continue? <laughs> so great question. And the reason is it comes to that second part of the Enlightenment, which is that the religion of the United States, much of the chagrin of social conservatives today, is liberalism, classic liberalism, which is a big tent, but this belief in the rights of the individual, of equality before the law, rights to property, free markets, and freedom of speech. And that's America's civic religion. The founding fathers were not incredibly religious. Interestingly, right, Jefferson, who founded one of the great universities of the United States, the University of Virginia, did not build a, a chapel. <laughs> there was libraries. He was a man of science. And so although these were God-fearing men, they purposely constructed a nation free of a state religion, um, which there is none still. And so although many Americans have been animated by religion, I would argue that the true religion that has come through in how we wage war is liberalism, also born out of the Enlightenment and a respect for life, liberty, as one would say here, the pursuit of happiness or liberté, égalité, fraternité in France, and another great Enlightenment nation. And probably why we disagree with them so much. <laughs> We're all trying to sell the same bill of goods with a different accent. But that's, I think, the more important feature. And the just war tradition, of course, has deep roots in Christianity, the writings of Augustine, among others, and obviously in the more contemporary period. But I think the real animating feature of it is the fact that war in the United States is actually considered an aberration, something that is due to monarchs and dictatorships. If you have democracy and liberal Republican democracy, then you have the people who make the decisions and as Kant tells us, would not choose to go to war unduly. And so the just war tradition is right to fight against that injustice, right? And so it does dovetail nicely with Christianity, which is, has been historically the dominant religion, but I would argue that it can be independent of it and has been independent of it. And you can fight a just war as an atheist, one should say classic liberal, as well as a Christian. Okay, well, this is the World Wars podcast. So we're going to dive into that period of the World Wars. How does this American liberal way of war manifest during the First World War? Because it seems like it's hard to find liberalism in those trenches. So many great questions. So 
The first thing to understand is that for the United States, the challenge has been since its founding to balance being an example of liberty and a guardian of classic liberal values with security. Okay. Um, and we originally wanted to call the book, The American Way of War, Between Annihilation and Restraint. That is the driving ethic, and we borrowed that from Colin Call, who had it as a term in an article he wrote, and we just loved it, is that there's this drive for total annihilation. And this goes back to the Greeks, remember, in the histories, the need to defeat your enemy, defeat your enemy decisively. And this is the problem for all democracies, Britain, France, any modern and even historical 20th century, Second World War democracy. You have a public that has to support the war. You have an economy that becomes, of course, in the Second World War, in total war, subjected to the war effort. But you're trying to get this over quickly so you can go back to normal life. And you need the public to support it and keep you in office. So this is the imperative that we find. By the way, I should say that the Western way of war, which is highly girded in science and technology, is not the exclusive domain of just the United States. It's the liberal nature that the United States particularly, and of course, allies like France and Britain also grapple with. But we can't forget the great machine and engineering nation of Germany, which unfortunately for humankind took a detour for the better part of a decade into national socialism and also made extensive use of technology to wage war, but in a decidedly illiberal fashion, right? And so that's the difference. Amazing technology, definitely a country of engineers and machinists. As much as Edison said that America was the great engineering country, the Germans at the very least give us a run for our money. And I expect you Englishmen might have something to say. But the point is, so in the First World War, we go back in time. What we really have in the First World War is a situation where you have technological advancement from the Industrial Revolution has created all kinds of technology that allows us to wage war in a more vicious fashion that meets then social change. And actually, I should say the social change comes first, right? So if we want to understand the First World War and the standoff that happens there, you have to think about basically the rise of the nation state in the 19th century and Napoleon, who introduces the levy en masse, which creates the grand army. And then it says, actually, it's two grand. So we create multiple armies, the army corps. So you have multiple army units then that can move around spatially and results in advents of tactics and strategy. And so this brings mass. The citizen has rights and responsibilities, and one of which is the fight for the nation. And of course, people are geared up to fight because they believe in the nation. So you have the mass army. And then you have the Industrial Revolution, which creates technology to allow that army to get places faster. So we're no longer relying on horses pulling lots of supporting material and extremely long supply lines. I mean, ask the French about the invasion of Russia, the rough winter, right? So now we've got trains that allow us to do that and to refuel. And then we end up with these new technologies. So of course, then the machine gun, which dates back to actually the American Civil War, which is a great example, among others, was not just exclusively invented in the United States, but John Gatling, the Gatling gun, he invented it as a way for one soldier to do the work of 10 because he was animated by the fact that at this point in time, in the middle of the 19th century, most soldiers didn't die directly in warfare. They died from infections stemming from the wounds they got. So he's like, hey, look, if we could have fewer soldiers fighting, it would be more humane. <laughs> and he wrote this to Lincoln. And so you have machine guns. And of course, well, machine guns necessitate more protections. So then you end up with tanks and you end up with trenches. And then you end up with the stalemate 
in the First World War, where, as Antiona says, the soldiers become the coal and the fire of a war machine, and they are just thrown into a battlefield where they are just slaughtered. And the military leadership has not caught up with the need to change. So they have a pitched battle that results in the deaths of tens of thousands of people over a four-year period. And so it's decidedly illiberal. And when it comes down to it, it introduces other technology, again, that we now regard as horribly brutal. So for example, poison gas, but poison gas was seen as initially more humane. Right? So in the United States, one of the people who invented poison gas is W. Lee Lewis. And it was called Lewisite. And Lewisite was very similar to mustard gas. So it destroyed skin tissue. It was fatal when inhaled. And so basically a systemic poison by just putting it on a person's skin, you're done. Cause excruciating pain, burning of your eyes, vomiting, really not a great way to go at a concentration of only 50 parts per million. So small dose, highly deadly. It was never deployed, but Lewis argued that it was more humane. It was efficient, it was economical and humane is what he argued. Now, of course, it did not come across that way to the nations of Europe and the United States. And there's a great poem, which I recommend everyone read. Dolce est de quorum propatia mori, right? So uh, it is noble and sweet to die for your country, which is written by Wilfred Owen in 1918. I think he died about two or three weeks afterwards. And so the poem is called Dolce et de quorum est. It's vivid. And I make all my students read it in a couple of my classes, particularly my history of war class, we look at the First World War and the beginnings of the death of nationalism in Europe because it was not seen as noble or chivalrous to die in the First World War. And so what the liberal impulse comes out of this is the regulation of these weapons. So you then see where the countries of the world and the United States actually led this charge, works to eliminate poison gas from the battlefield regulate the use of submarine warfare, unrestricted submarine warfare, right? So we have all of these, the Hague Conventions and progress towards introducing more law to try and make war more humane. It's always going to be tough, but the liberal side comes out where Cicero said in times of war, the law is silent. And this was after the First World War, an effort to change it. So you see how the technology often invented to be more humane was not so, and then get a counter pushback through the law to try and adjust and regulate, which you wouldn't get outside of a democratic framework. It's driven by the United States and then other liberal democracies in Europe that imposed it, one could argue, on less democratic countries, but who also bought in because of the important nature of the weapons. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So there's a liberal ambition, a humane ambition behind the invention of certain weapons technologies, but in a kind of almost inevitable irony, these weapons are always put to more extreme uses. They are misused in certain ways by human beings who, depending on which theories and philosophies you read, could be bellicose by nature. When it comes to the history of American warfare, do military planners in the United States start to learn lessons from this when it comes to the Second World War, or do we see the same mistakes happening? Well, mistakes, that's an interesting use of the term. Because mistake implies belief that what they were doing was wrong in the beginning. So what happens in the Second World War, of course, is that in the interwar period, military leadership in one country figures out the problem, the strategic and tactical problems of technological social change. Unfortunately, it wasn't France or in Britain, they had the Maginot Line. It was the Germans who applied this new technology in a blisteringly fast manner via Blitzkrieg, lightning war, and maneuver warfare to overcome and overrun Europe very quickly. So then, of course, the Allies step up to the plate. And you see, again, like in historical experiences, the United States tries to use as much technology as possible to augment its war effort. And the reason the U.S. makes this recourse to technology early on is that the U.S. population was very small. So in the 19th century, despite nationalism, it was a very small country. The population was doubling, Franklin said, every 12 years, but essentially it was small. So we needed machines to do work and to fight war. And of course, we use them also economically, the advent of the production line, Henry Ford. Right? So they apply technology to fighting the war effort. And of course, science in terms of like bombing and thoughts about the use of air power. But I wouldn't say that they thought there were mistakes. Their big discussion in the Second World War in the United States, and as you well know, in Europe was, of course, the targeting of cities, which to this point hadn't been really done. And so the challenge was, and of course, the argument is that it was actually accidental to begin with, that the Luftwaffe dropped some bombs in the wrong spot. And then everyone's like, what's going on here? But the thing was, when you've entered a period of total war, which is what the first, arguably, but especially the Second World Wars, 
the entire society is mobilized. So then questions of law and targeting, the question is, well, what's part of the war effort? And by the way, we can fast forward and we'll talk about maybe a bit Kosovo, right? The Balkans, do you blow up a TV tower? Is that part of the war effort if they're disseminating information or is it civilian? The Europeans argued it was civilian. The Americans said part of the war effort. So you start getting these discussions and debate about what's legitimate target, right? And if the civilian workforce is integral to the war effort, as it is, of course, are they legitimate targets? And so I, you do get those discussions, but I don't know if anyone viewed it as a mistake at the time. And then later, the carpet bombing and firebombing of Hamburg and Dresden, um, Bomber Harris, the famous British Royal Air Force leader, right, who's architect of those bombing raids. With hindsight, we can say it's uh, was wrong or a mistake, but war is always hell. It doesn't mean we can't try and make it a little better, but I think at the time, you know, the past is a foreign country, as Lowenthal said many years ago, and you need to appreciate it in that time period. And Britain and the United States were trying to end a war that was tough. And my favorite war museum, by the way, is in Dresden, War Museum of the German Armed Forces. And it's excellent because it doesn't celebrate war, but it provides a really great introspective look. And Daniel Liebeskind, I believe, is the architect who did the addition, and it points in the direction that the bombers came from Britain to bomb Theresien. And there's a debate, of course, now in Germany about Germans as victims, the balance and imbalance of the war, etc. And their whole point is actually you have to remember that the war started here and we sent it out and it came back to us. And they have in this part, you start at the top and work down in the museum, they have a sidewalk from Poland that was destroyed right in the Blitzkrieg. And they have the melted, destroyed front of a Dutch orphanage from Rotterdam. So one reaps what one sows would be the argument here. And that's what the German Armed Forces Museum illustrates to us. And so hence my interesting take on mistake. You talk about the British bombing of places like Dresden. And of course, that ended up in a fiery, towering inferno that ended over 30,000 lives. And the Americans during that period were very much, like you say, on a different track. They were talking about a precision bombing doctrine and investing in new technologies like the Norden bomb site that would allow them to achieve pinpoint precision bombing on those war-making capacities and avoid the population and their livelihoods. So there is a narrative of America going in a different, more liberal, humane way through technologies. But I have to ask, how on earth does this fit into the way in which the war ends. Because, of course, the United States is the only nation in history to use nuclear weapons in anger. Well, they were highly effective at the end of the day, and all Western war is predicated on effectiveness. As you pointed out, there is a balance between annihilation and restraint. And at the end of the day, we can say all we want about humanity and sing Kumbaya, but when it's us versus them, Weapons are utilized. And at that time, again, we have to remember where we were, essentially that the war in Europe was ending. The war in Asia portended to drag on indefinitely. The island hopping campaigns were arduous, to put it mildly, and they were losing thousands of American and Australian and British forces fighting throughout the Pacific. The Japanese had showed no signs of surrendering and were in a more robust and isolated position than the Germans, who, of course, their historical problem is being surrounded on all sides. And so at that time, Truman comes to office. Roosevelt passes away unexpectedly, but not unexpectedly. In hindsight, we know. And Stalin is pressuring this concern about keeping him in the fold. And of course, the growing conflict 
possibly with the Soviet Union. And the decision is made to use those weapons. And they, of course, communicated the fact that they were going to use a super weapon. Gas was thought to be a super weapon, many things, but this really super weapon. And the Japanese did not surrender. And so then they used one and the Japanese did not surrender and wrote to Stalin and Stalin said, I'm going to declare war on you tomorrow, right? You know, I'm not going to condemn this. And of course, then we use a second weapon and the Japanese surrender. Of course, we also know that less people died in the atomic bombings than did in the fire bombings of Germany. So it was a highly effective precision weapon that killed a lot of people and is atrocious. Yep. But not worse necessarily than fire bombings of Dresden or Hamburg. War is warfare. And again, I think the German war museum is a good example of where did the war start and how it was ended. And so the United States may have attempted to hem in the ambitions of Japan in the Pacific in the 30s and cut off oil supplies. And arguably that pushed them towards war. But we were trying to maintain a balance that we thought was necessary. And ultimately, the Japanese did start the war and passed as a foreign country. And so it's easy to sit and say how horrific it was. But I would also point out that despite a lot of tension and terrible things throughout the Cold War, that those weapons were not used again. And so I don't think that it was first and foremost, the best idea the U.S. military had, and that they didn't want to use those. They saw the tremendous power of them and tried to vis-a-vis enemies alike, right, act responsibly. But unfortunately, they were used in that instance. So what can these experiences and this concept of the American way of war teach us about American warfare in the later 20th century and into the 21st century? Well, there's a robust belief that war can be accomplished quick and easily through technology. And of course, we see it fail time and time again, most recently in Iraq and Afghanistan. But in the Revolution of Military Affairs, the first Gulf War was heralded as a great example of it. But it wasn't. As Stephen Biddle has shown, it was basically maneuver warfare, a little more accurate against the vastly underpowered enemy that blew out of the water. It wasn't that revolutionary. And the shock and awe campaign in Iraq also wasn't that revolutionary. I think the real revolution in military affairs is going to be the near disappearance, but not entire disappearance of soldiers from the battlefield. The real revolution is just like in the end of the First World War, that drones and automation replace people increasingly in Western warfare because of the fact that human life is, especially in Western societies, this goes back to the US-Japan argument, is seen as very valuable and we have fewer children and we don't want them to die. And so if you can wage war with less people, by the way, that also creates less political pressure on you. Who was interrogating Obama for the most part about his drone war in South Asia? Very few people. And we weren't caught up in a massive boots on the ground campaign as the drawdown occurred. So it gives democracies a lot of freedom to act. Theoretically, again, drones were created to be more precise, and they are. They're much more precise than a ground invasion, quite frankly. When you look at data, they're more humane. Obviously, they can be used inappropriately, and mistakes can be made. And I highly recommend Eye in the Sky as a great teaching tool of film. But this is not just the drone and automation that facilitates it, but the advent of the professional military in the 1970s starts this trend away from the society collectively carrying the burden of warfare, not to mention in the United States, the fact that we do not really tax the population for warfare. We just issue debt. American war in the 20th and 21st century is underwritten by, ironically, Russia and China and Saudi Arabia, (laughs) who buy American debt. This is the great, interesting irony, right? So I think the real revolution in military affairs is this, is that Western democracies, and especially the United States being really the only one that's incredibly 
in some sense, militant, but they're very capable, strong, robust military because they've not been exposed to war the way the Europeans were in the 20th century. We didn't suffer through the war the way all the Europeans did, including our British friends. We are decoupled from it. We're decoupled because the professional military decouples us from it. We're decoupled because technology allows it and those wars don't really occur on our soil. And I think that's the real revolution of military affairs, not stuff that we've been writing about since the 80s that hasn't yet come to pass. Mike, thank you so much. There are very few people who can take us on a journey from ancient Greece through the Enlightenment, past Napoleon, into the First World War, the Second World War, and then through to modern drone warfare today. It has been an education. Where can people read more about this and what's next? Uh, great. Well, I highly recommend the book Law, Science, Liberalism, and the American Way of War, written by Stephanie Carvin and Michael John Williams. It's available from Cambridge. My next project is actually on the American soldier and dovetails with this is basically looking at the rhetoric and reality of the volunteer soldier versus the professional soldier and exactly what I was just talking about with you now in terms of who carries the burden for society. And basically the argument there is why a return to conscription makes no sense, not in the least because we've never really had a conscripted army and this ideal type soldier doesn't exist. And so I'll be digging on that. And if you want to learn more, you can check out mjwilliams.com, which will direct you to my website at Syracuse and some of the other things I'm working on. Mike, thank you so much. And I can't wait to get you back on the show to talk about your project. Thank you, James. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.